Well, if you uh, have your Bibles, you can turn them to uh, Nehemiah chapter 4, but really we're going to spend more time in Matthew chapter 26 today. And the reason for that is I got to build a foundation for what I'm going to say today. And uh, really my main goal, if you don't get anything else uh, out of this sermon, is here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that God will not abandon you. No matter how hard the fight is, how hard the battle is, if you are in Christ Jesus, God will not forsake you and he will not abandon you. Now, what I've got to do today is a little bit of theology. It's the science behind that. It's how I know that what I'm saying is true. Next week, come back, and I'll tell you how you actually experience it in actual life. Today is not going to be the most practical. When you leave today, what I want you to do is worship and with the truth that I'm telling you, but then to go home and say, now, how do I actually make that work? Like, I believe what he says. I believe he, he, when he says God won't abandon me, but man, I, I've got cancer and I don't feel like God's with me. Or, you know, I've, I've got these financial problems and I don't really feel like God is with me. So I'm going to give you the truth this week. God will not abandon you. And here's how I know that. And next week, I'll tell you how to experience or feel that truth. But here's why it's important that I don't skip to part two, because we need truth to be weighty. We need to know why we believe what we believe. Otherwise, these things just become platitudes. You know, it's easy to say God will not abandon me when things are good. But when things are not good, if I don't have truth, if I don't really believe firmly that God will not abandon me, then that just becomes something you put on a coffee mug that I don't really believe. And this is why a lot of people lose faith in God, because they say, I tried God and it didn't work. I went to church and they told me he wouldn't abandon me, but he abandoned me. So we have to have truth that weighs us down when the winds of life come. Because here's what I know about this room. Winds of life are going to come your way. Some of you, if you do not have cancer, you will one day. So some of you might not have financial problems right now, but you will one day. Some of you have children that love you and love Jesus right now, but one day they're going to go wayward. You're going to have winds of life that threaten to blow you over. And you need strong truth that roots you to the ground when we come to those moments. So we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 4, and there's two things that strike me about Nehemiah at the end of this chapter. Number one is his confidence and his support. Nehemiah is very confident. He's God's going to fight for us. You know, we are weak. People are coming around us from all sides, and yet I am not worried at all, Israelites. You know why? Because I believe God is going to fight for us. He believes it deeply, and you can tell. And also Nehemiah's support. The men that are with him are ridiculous. Did you see the end verse there? That's nuts. They won't even take off their swords when they're taking a shower. That's how all in they are for Nehemiah. You know, that is support when you're taking your rifle to the shower with you. You know, I am always ready. And that's the kind of support Nehemiah has. And here's why that's striking to me. Because when we fast forward to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 26, we see Jesus in his time of need. His enemies crashing in on him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what you would expect is Jesus to be like Nehemiah, a hero of the faith, confident in God, and also feeling supported by those around him. And yet it's the exact opposite. Today we're going to see an anxious, terrified, horrified Jesus. And we're going to see him completely abandoned by everybody who he loves. And what I want to try to do by the end of this sermon, if, if I lead you on the right journey, is I want you to see how Jesus being abandoned... And Jesus being forsaken by God is good news for us. And it's actually what gives Nehemiah confidence. Even though the cross was 400 years after Jesus, and the cross was 2,000 years ago for us, it still has this kind of effect on Nehemiah's life and our life. If you've ever wondered, how are people in the Old Testament saved? How are people in the Old Testament experiencing the, the gospel of Jesus before Jesus came and died? Well, today, hopefully, I'll answer a little bit of that for you. But let me first pray, and then we'll jump in. Father God, I am weary. I am tired. Uh, my soul is tired this week. God, I need you. I need the truth that you will not abandon me. You will not abandon me in this sermon and you will not abandon me in this life. 
And God, I do not want to go without you. If you are not with me, if you have forsook me, if you have abandoned me, then it's best that I just get off of this stage right now and take off this microphone because nothing I say will matter at all. But Lord, I do stand up here because I believe that you will not abandon me because of what you've done in Christ. One was already forsaken, so I would not have to be forsaken. God, I pray that as we leave this place, the people in this room, God, would have a greater love for Jesus. They would leave here maybe not knowing exactly how it affects their Monday just quite yet, but they would leave here going, man, I love that Savior. I love what He did for me. And I now know I will not be forsaken. God, it is in Your name that I pray these things. Amen. Amen. So since I am going to be preaching from Matthew 26 also, I want to read the whole text uh, that I'm going to be reading from, which is just 10 verses, uh, 36 through 45. And then we'll spend a lot of time here in Matthew chapter 26. Uh, so beginning in verse 36, it says, Then Jesus came with them to a place, and them as the disciples, called Gethsemane. He told the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Verse 40, Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, So you couldn't stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray, so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Which is just a superhuman moment for Jesus, if I can add a comment there. He's in this time of, of great trial, and all he wants is a friend to stay awake with him. I think we can all resonate with that. Verse 42 says, Again a second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping, because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? See, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Now, the word that we see at the very beginning there in uh, 36 through 38, when it says that Jesus uh, was going over there to pray, and then verse 37, it says he's taken along Peter and Zebedee, and it says he began to be sorrowful and troubled. That word trouble can actually be translated horror. Jesus is horrified at what is going on right now, which is kind of an interesting image of Jesus because throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, if you read it, Jesus is always this confident rock in God. There's this really cool scene where the disciples are out on the sea and uh, a storm comes and the boat's literally about to break apart. The disciples are freaking out. We're going to die on this sea and they're looking all around for Jesus and they find Jesus in the hole of the boat and he's taking a nap. He's sleeping and he wakes up and he rebukes his disciples like you guys don't know that we have God on our side. And he calms the winds and the waves with his voice. This is the kind of Jesus that the disciples have seen all throughout the Gospels. That's the kind of Jesus I expect. Isn't it the kind of Jesus you expect? And then all of a sudden something happens here in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is horrified. Uh, The Gospel of Mark says he is astonished. Whatever has happened here has shocked Jesus. Uh, And in Luke, we get a detail that we don't get anywhere else. And that is that when Jesus comes back to the disciples, I think it's the second or the third time, he is soaked in sweat. Have you ever been so anxious that it literally made you sweat? But it wasn't just sweat. He had blood mixed in with his sweat, which is something that happens to people who are under extreme, extreme stress. You say, why in the world was Jesus so anxious? 
Why was he so terrified? What is so scary about what Jesus is undergoing? And I expect Jesus to be like Nehemiah. Get up and fight, men. We're going to win. That's not Jesus at all. Jesus is terrified. And he comes to his disciples and he's saying, please stay awake with me. This is so scary. I don't even want to be alone. Now, if you want to know what is so horrifying to Jesus, we just got to read verse 39. It says, going a little further, he fell, he being Jesus, he fell face down and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. See, the problem with Jesus is the cup. And uh, I used to think of the cup as kind of something that Jesus was about to undergo in the future. Like Jesus was afraid of the cross or Jesus was afraid of what was to come. But that cannot be the case because all throughout the Gospels, Jesus always knows what's coming. He always tells the guys, it's not my time yet. We must go to Jerusalem so that I can die and be raised again in three days. He knew what he was about to undergo. The difference is right now, Jesus is actually experiencing the wrath of God. Now, as Christians, one of the things we believe is that Jesus took our place. He paid the penalty we were supposed to pay. Now, if I were to ask you, what is that penalty? Some of you might say hell, you know, or uh, death. And those things would be true things, but I want to define them. Because the Bible doesn't define death in the way that we do, and it doesn't define hell in the way that you're probably thinking. When I think of hell, I think of a place where God tortures people endlessly. You know, it's like Zeus with a lightning bolt. But that's not actually how the Bible presents hell. Hell is not God torturing people. Hell is a place where God is no longer there. His presence has been removed from the people. Hell is giving people actually what they want. Look at what 2 Thessalonians uh, 1, 8, and 9 says. When he, this is talking about the end of time, when we've all been risen and now we're going off, either to heaven with Christ or to hell without Christ. It says when he takes vengeance with the flaming fire on those who don't know God, and on those who obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that word flaming fire. And we get an image of hell, don't we? But this is, this is a metaphor for what it's like. Verse 9, it says, They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, and look what it is, from the Lord's presence and from His glorious strength. So friends, look at me. Whatever you think of heaven and whatever you think of hell, here's what you need to know. Heaven is a place where God's presence is fully experienced. It's what the Garden of Eden was in Genesis 1-3. Uh, And then we see in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve fall, they sin. And what is their punishment? Well, they were told if they eat from the tree, they surely will die. But they don't die. At least they don't die in the way that we do. But they do die in a biblical sense because they're separated from God. They had perfect union with Him, walking with Him. And their sin separated them from God. So when we think of hell, that is hell. Hell is being separated from God. Hell is my loving kindness of the Father, the Heavenly Father, the one who holds reality together, is no longer for me, but He is now against me. I have been abandoned by the Heavenly Father. And this is why when people say, how could a good God send people to hell? I know that they don't really understand what hell is. Because hell is not a place where you're tortured, and heaven is not a place where you just get to do what you want. I hear some people, especially at funerals, talk about heaven. And it just it makes me sad, because they're talking about what their loved one is doing. And what they do is they create heaven in their own mind. This guy liked fishing, so obviously what he's doing in heaven is he's fishing for all eternity. Or or this guy liked this thing, and so he's doing that hobby up there. We just know Grandpa Jack. You know, he he was a terrible person. But boy, he's up there drinking Jack Beam with God right now. You guys have heard this, haven't you? You've been to funerals where you've And I want to say, well, if that's your idea of heaven, you're going to be terribly disappointed. Because what I know for sure about heaven is the best benefit we have about heaven is that we get to be perfectly unified with God. I see Jesus clearly. I walk with Him. My Savior. I love Him. God's rule and reign is over the entire earth. 
And for somebody who doesn't like God or like God's laws or like God's ways, that is not heaven, friends. That is hell. That is why the early church fathers believed that heaven and hell were not different places. It was the same place. God's kingdom reigning everywhere. And for the person who loves God, it was heaven. But for the person who hated it, it was eternal hell. And so God in his kindness, in his mercy actually, creates a place called hell so that the people can go to eternal destruction away from him so they would not have to endure his presence. So friends, if you have a loved one who did not love Jesus, you actually need to know that it is God's gracious kindness that he is not with them because they wouldn't like it anyways. It would be eternal hell for them to be with him in their presence. So as Christians, what we believe is that Jesus came to take that penalty. What do I deserve? What do I deserve? I deserve hell. I deserve eternal destruction away from God's presence. Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life. He is the only one who deserves perfect union with God at all times. And he does. Throughout his whole life, he's never, ever felt what it was like to be forsaken by his father. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus says, Me and my Father, we are one. We are one. We're in perfect union, perfect accordance with one another. This is why Jesus is never, ever, ever afraid. And we come to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus gets a foretaste of what is going to happen on the cross. See, the physical pain Jesus endured on the cross was terrible. It was awful. But that's not truly what the penalty was. The penalty was that he would cry out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's this theological kind of mystery that I can't fully answer. Jesus is fully God, and yet He's fully man. The the Trinity is is Father God and Son, Father Spirit and Son all together in unity. And yet, something happened on the cross where the Father turned His face away from the Son. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you see why Jesus is so horrified as He's begun to experience it. He's not worried about the cup that is to come. He's experiencing it right now. That's why it says this horror happened when He walks away and He begins to pray. He begins to reach out to God, and for the first time in his life, there's nobody on the other end of the line. And friends, when we don't have God with us, when we are on our own, it is horrifying. It is terrifying to the point where you should have night sweats, to the point where Jesus, who had never experienced this, feels blood drops coming in, mixed in with his sweat, and he just wants somebody with him because it is so dark and alone. In fact, in the original language, it says, my soul, this is what Jesus says, my soul has been swallowed up in grief. And those aren't even actually his own words. He's so grief-filled, he can't even use his own words. He, he just goes back to what he knows, which is Psalm 42. And look at what Psalm 42 says, verses 1 through 3 and 9 through 11. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. Well, all day long, the people say to me, where is your God? Verse nine, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? My adversaries taunt me as if crushing my bones. While all day long, they say to me, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? For the first time, he's saying, God, I long for you and I can't find you. You're not there. Now, those of us who are fallen humans, we've experienced this at times, have we not? In the middle of a battle, it feels very, very dark. And we say, God, where are you? Jesus had never, ever once experienced this forsaking that he was undergoing right now for the benefit of you and I. He's drinking of the cup. I like what William Lane says in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark. 
It says, The dreadful sorrow and anxiety then out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. Those things didn't bother Jesus. It is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father at the prospect of alienation from God, which is entailed in the judgment upon sin which Jesus assumes. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him, and he staggered. It's kind of similar to this. If, if you remember back to when you were a kid and you were learning to ride a bike, and your dad kindly lied to you. <laughs> you know, he, he was holding the seat for you while you were going, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're riding along, things are going good, and you look back, and to your horror, your dad's not holding the seat anymore. You know what I mean? This is exactly what happens in a real sense to Jesus. He looks back and his father is no longer there. And nobody deserved union with God more than Jesus. He lived a perfect life. And yet in this moment, he is forsaken. Why? So that you and I might not be forsaken. Now, it's, it's really interesting to ask yourself why Jesus underwent this in the Garden of Gethsemane before the cross. Because he undergoes this and then he gets his courage back. God's back with him uh, through the trial. And he, you, know, you see the, the stern kind of rock Jesus come back. But the question is, why did God allow this to happen? Why did it happen right now, actually before the cross? And it's really interesting when you think about it. It's because Jesus was choosing to love us. See, if Jesus went to the cross and he didn't know what was going to happen to him, something just underwent for him. But Jesus knew what was going to happen, and he did it anyways because he loved us. Jonathan Edwards, the old pastor, says it was like the Garden of Gethsemane was a stove oven, a furnace. And Jesus looked into that furnace, and he felt the heat off of it, and he still said, I'm going to do it. Because there's no other way. It's very interesting in the three prayers that Jesus prays, with each prayer he gets more confident. Did you notice that? Notice that? At first he's, God, please, if there's any other way, don't let this happen. And then he says, God, if it's your will, I guess I'll do it. And then at the end he says, let's get up and go. My betrayer is near. He's not saying, let's get up and run away. He's saying, let's go. I am ready because I love the people. I see into eternity. I see Nehemiah back there and I got to die for him. I see Blake Farley up there in 2022. That kid is messed up. I got to die for him because I love him. He'll never experience union with God if I am not forsaken by God for him. This is truly Jesus' love on full display for us. Now, going back to the story of Nehemiah really quick. Uh, not really quick, because Nehemiah's story is our story as well. What you need to know about Nehemiah, with all that in mind, of what Jesus did for us, is that Nehemiah was a coward. He wasn't always courageous. He was, he was a coward. Remember, if you'll back to Nehemiah chapter 2, when Nehemiah goes before the king to ask this question, look at what it says. It says, So the king said to me, me being Nehemiah, Why do you look so sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. I was overwhelmed with fear. It's overwhelmed with fear. His fear swallowed up as Jesus's was. But look at what happens by chapter four. He's basically telling his guys, you know, quit being wusses and let's get ready to fight. That's the Blake Farley translation. It says, after I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. And look at what he's rooting it in. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. And then in verse 20 of today's text, Whenever you hear the sound of the ram's horn, rally to us there. And we expect him to say, so that we can all fight together. That's not what he says. He says, our God will fight for us. So what changed? How did Nehemiah go from a coward to courageous? Same way you can go from being a coward to courageous. Back to chapter 2, verse 18. It says, I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. They said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do this good work. 
In other words, what gave Nehemiah courage in the face of the battle was he became aware of the fact that God was with him. And he said, wait a minute, if God is with me, then who could be against me? See, when I know for a fact that God has not abandoned me, that he has not forsaken me, it gives me great power to go through this life knowing that I can face any battle. It gives me kind of a crazy courage. Now, what's interesting about Nehemiah is he didn't know all that we know. The Old Testament calls it a mystery because the people in the Old Testament knew that God shouldn't be for them. They knew that because of their sin, he should have forsaken them. I love Deuteronomy chapter 31, 8, because a lot of you probably have it in your house on like a placard somewhere, or you've seen this on Facebook. And I always think it's funny because it's like clearly people did not read the whole chapter. Deuteronomy 31, 8 says, The Lord is the one who will go before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or abandon you. Do not be afraid or discouraged. How many of you have seen that on social media somewhere? Yeah, two of you. The rest of you are liars. <laughs> See this all the time on social media. And I'm like, ooh, well, maybe you should just like keep reading a couple verses. Because here's a verse I bet none of you have heard. Maybe you have. Maybe you're like, I'm an expert. I know what's coming. But I doubt you've heard this verse. Verse 16 of the same chapter. The Lord said to Moses, you are about to rest with your ancestors. These people will soon prostitute themselves with the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will abandon me and break the covenant I have made with them. My anger will burn against them on that day. I will abandon them and hide my face from them so that they will become easy prey. I don't like that verse as much. Do you? In my sin, God's going to abandon me so that I might become easy prey? And this is what Nehemiah knows. He's like, well, we don't deserve this. Why? Why is God with us? This is what all the Old Testament saints wondered. Why is God continually showing us grace? In fact, in this same time period, Ezra says this. Chapter 9, verse 13. It says, after all that has happened to us because of our evil deeds and terrible guilt, though you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have allowed us to survive, should we break your commands again and intermarry with the people who commit these detestable practices? Wouldn't you become so angry with us that you would destroy us, leaving neither remnant nor survivor? Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we survive as a remnant today. Here we are before you with our own guilt, but though no one can stand in your presence because of this. In other words, he's saying, I know you are just and righteous, and sinners cannot stand in your presence, and yet here I am. He says, I know that if we sin again, you're definitely going to abandon us. And guess what? Newsflash, the Israelites, right at the end of Nehemiah, we'll see, they sin again. And yet God, for some reason, is not abandoning his people. He keeps a remnant, a remnant in which Jesus Christ would come out of. And the Old Testament saints did not know how this was working. Why is God giving us grace? See, because grace is not something that God can just like create out of himself and he just gives it to people. No, because God is just, there must always be a reason for grace. Grace is undeserved favor. That doesn't mean it wasn't deserved somewhere. It means somebody deserved it for you. I like to think of it this way. I always think of my grandpa, Jim. Today is the last NASCAR race of the season. None of you guys care. Uh, That's fine. But if you want to know where I'll be this afternoon, I'll be watching a NASCAR race. Uh, And I always love going to the Knoxville Nationals with my grandpa. It's like redneck heaven. It's a, it's a big sprint car race that a lot of people from all over the country come to. And my grandpa is an official for the World of Outlaws. He was for a really long time. And they let him come back. And he's still officials for the Knoxville Nationals. And it is so cool because I get a VIP experience you cannot have. I get to go into the track for free. I get to go up, up into a tower with the officials. I get the best view of the track. I get to go wherever I want, right up to the drivers, right up into the driver's meeting, all these places that people would literally die to go to. They probably wouldn't die for it, but they'd pay a lot of money to go to an event like this. And the only reason why is because I'm Jim Farley's grandson. I am living under his grace. They see Jim Farley and they say, okay, this knucklehead can go in. One day, 50 years from now, they will no longer know Jim Farley. And if I try to do the things I get to do now, it will not work. 
Because I didn't earn the grace. He did. And He extended that grace to me. So what the Old Testament saints were thinking is, which one of us earned the grace of God? Because as I look around, there's not one righteous. No, not one. And yet, here's how Old Testament saints were saved. In the same way that we look back at the cross of Jesus, they looked forward to the cross of Jesus. I'll just give you one New Testament verse. It's kind of mind-blowing. It says, For He chose us in Him, being Jesus, before the foundation of the world. This is Ephesians 1.4. To be holy and blameless in love before Him. I'll give you one more. 1 Peter 1.20. It says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but it was revealed in these last times for you. In other words, the cross, it happened in time. It happened out of place. But in the heavens, it happened outside of time. It's like God is a painter of time and He steps outside of time and He knows the cross is the climax, the center point of all history. And so the grace that He gives the Old Testament saints is based upon the work of Jesus. And the grace that He gives us is based upon the works of Jesus. Why is this good news, friends? Because if it was based upon my work, I would be forsaken. But I am not because the one was forsaken for me. So I can know deep in my soul that I will never be abandoned. I might feel abandoned, but if I am in Christ, I am never actually abandoned. It is an illusion, a lie from the enemy. And I am sweating like Mike Tyson in a spelling bee. Can we get a fan on, please? I mean, I am drenched. Uh, I'm giving, it's like the vest felt really good when I was outside. Then I got up here and I was like, whoa. Oh, God bless you, Lindsay. The Spirit of the Lord. Now, Phil Riken says this. He says, this must always be the main lesson we learn when we go to Garden of Gethsemane. We will never have to suffer what our Savior suffered in Gethsemane or at Calvary. For the very reason that everything He suffered there was in our place and on our behalf. Friends, if you believe that, it gives you an outrageous courage. And it's given Christians throughout time an outrageous courage. I thought of just three stories this week that I've heard from church history. Uh, There's a famous line in church history, play the man, Ridley, which you guys probably don't know, and that's my fault as a pastor, because you should know that line. It's the the last words of Hugh Lattimore to his friend uh, Ridley and Nicholas Ridley, and they're on the the stake about to be burnt in the 1500s for their faith in Christ. The king is about to light them on fire, and here's his last words. Look at the courage he has in the face of death. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England that I shall never be put out. That's the kind of courage I want in the face of death. And he could have that. You know why? Because he said, even in death, I will not be forsaken because one has been forsaken in my place. Uh, There's another story I heard this week of a missionary who took his brother's place on the mission field. This missionary was out in the 1700s and uh, he was on these islands trying to get this tribal country to know Jesus. And they killed his brother. And when his brother found out, the first thing his brother did was, well, where do I sign up to take his place? Why? Because he knew that even in death, he would not be forsaken or abandoned. And then the last one that I actually just heard this week was the story of uh, a group of missionaries that moved to an African country. And uh, they took all their children with them and they they really tried to infiltrate in the society. And they wanted to be good Christians to the people and preach the gospel as they did these things. So their kids went to the schools of these people. And what they found out was over time, uh, their kids began to die. And the reason why their children began to die was because the people were slowly poisoning their children. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if somebody poisons my child, that's that's a battle. That's me giving up on these people coming to the gospel. But that's not what these people did. These missionaries... They would bury their child and then they went back into the village and they began to preach the gospel again. Why? Because they really believed the things I'm saying to you. It wasn't just something they put on the coffee mug. 
My God will not abandon me. (laughs) They knew that in all things, even the loss of a child, God would not abandon them. God would not forsake them in any darkness that they might be undergoing. So whether you are in life or death, cancer, old age, divorce, financial ruin or financial success, you can be certain, friends, that you will not be forsaken in Christ. I love what Paul says, Romans 8, 38, 39. In the band, if you guys want to go ahead and come up, you can. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, do you believe that? I hope that you do. Because one was forsaken so that you would not be abandoned. Here's the last piece of good news from Nehemiah 4 uh, and Matthew chapter 26, very quickly. And that is that Jesus' disciples slept on him. Nehemiah's disciples took their sword to the shower. They served him to death. Jesus' disciples gave up on him. They couldn't even stay awake. Here's why that's good news for you and I. Because if Jesus had disciples like Nehemiah, I would think that there was no way God could love me. Because I would look at those disciples and I would say, well, that's great, but I'm not like them. I I sin. I fall short. I doubt God. Sometimes I fall asleep when I should be praying. And yet... God loves me all the more, and I can believe that. You know why? Because Nehemiah's disciples weren't Jesus' disciples. It was Peter. (laughs) It was the boys who could not stay awake in Jesus' time of need. And I look at those guys, and I say, if God can save those guys, then I know he can save Blake Farley. And I pray that you believe that today, friends. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I have tried to take a bunch of truth and to pour it into minds over a 30-minute period And God, if you do not enlighten their hearts, if you do not open their hearts to this good news, it's all going to be in vain. I cannot preach this text as good as it is, and I know that. But God, I pray today that people would leave here knowing that because Jesus was abandoned, they never will be. Because the righteous one took their place. And there is nothing and nobody who can get in between them and Jesus. And they never have to fear that God is not with them. Friends, if you would, with your eyes closed and head bowed, take about 20 seconds and say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Father God, we have anxious, wandering hearts. I pray that you would help us lift our weary eyes and set them on Jesus. That we would believe that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. I pray that the people would know that they did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Because they have received the spirit of adoption through what Jesus has done for them. They get to call you Father. You will not forsake and you will not abandon them. It's in your name that I pray these things. Amen. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing together.